Welcome back to the big interview. It gives you a tingle just to hear that music, doesn't it? Many of you have asked why it's taken so long for another interview since the last one, the Chris Warder one, which we enjoyed, we loved doing, and you enjoyed so much. The reason is that we've been out and recording three big, big, big interviews. Two Scots, one Englishman, men for whom, in each case, Italy played a large part in their life, for good or bad. The gap between Wardle and now, and between now and the first time that we'll be releasing those big interviews, comes because, since May, this has been a fantastic journey. We didn't realise that there was such a gap, nor that you would enjoy it as much as you have done, that we'd get so much positive feedback. But the fact is, we've been funding this ourselves. Martin, Neil and I have had to lay out for everything that you've heard, whether it be the travel accommodation, the editing, no matter what it was, we were footing the bill. We'd love to keep on doing that, but it isn't going to be possible. We've got to raise uh, money so that we can stay on for the next year or so. We don't want to put a paywall up. We're dead against that. We want as wide a range of people as possible to be able to hear this in terms of geography all around the world. You've been listening. Age too, particularly age. We're talking to people who maybe some of the listeners have never seen play. And I think there's an importance in educating people about what kind of footballers the people they now see on television or hear on the radio were once, usually ones that inspired me. So we're going to go for crowdfunding using kickstarter.com and we're not just going to ask for you to join us and support us and make this big interview your podcast by helping fund it. There are rewards. We will give a series of big rewards for people who back us. The news about that will come out on the 19th. If you want to be the first to hear about the potential rewards, most of which involve social time with me or around the big interview itself, then get on the mailing list at grahamhunter.tv. Once again, the, the clear message is we want to continue. We know you've enjoyed this very much indeed. We're nudging towards a million listens since whatever it was, April. It's pretty incredible. For the moment, here is a compilation of what you might call, jokingly, greatest hits. Some clips from the interviews you've enjoyed so much. Help us keep this going, won't you? Without your support, these next three will be the last three. All right, that's the grown-up bit over. Me, back to being a kid in love with football again. Why did we start with Gary Neville? Well... I found myself, whenever he spoke on Sky about football, wandering up to the television in my living room to be closer to it, not to miss a comma, not to miss a phrase. He has this capacity to be scintillatingly intelligent and to draw your mind into the analysis that he's giving. Now, whether you 100% agree with it, 100% understand all of it, what I was convinced Gary Neville was doing was raising the bar in a way that certainly I loved. I love to be challenged. I love to be educated. I'm a million miles away from thinking that I know it all. It's very, very important if you intend to communicate about football while it changes, while it modernises, to listen to and to understand the leading thinkers. And Gary Neville is a leading thinker. His analysis has joined a brand of work at Sky, which I think is the best we have ever seen or heard in the history of televised or broadcast football in the UK. That's saying something. When we spoke to him, I found him passionate, 
electrically involved in what he was saying. There was a buzz off him as he spoke about this. It would be false to say the entire future of English football, its betterment, rests on the shoulders of Gary Neville. But if everybody was as passionate about understanding, planning for, reacting to football situations from development right up to international level, if everybody in England who's involved in the game thought like him, talked like him, worked like him, paid attention like him, English football would be a damn sight better. I've listened to people, punters, because that's who I think the majority, you know, we can't all be top quality footballers or broadcasters. People talk about games now in terms of strategy, particularly younger people. Strategy, patterns from weeks previously, knowing what a manager does and doesn't like in terms of a formation or even how a formation might change during a game. Now, you're influencing that. You must be conscious of the fact that Although it's entertainment, although yeah. we want people to enjoy the goals and, and tune yeah. in to be entertained, there is a level of education, or, or elevating the debate yeah. at least. I, I have no problem. I think once uh, half-time, I think we spent four minutes on one corner, on one goal. I've got no problem with that. Because if you want to go and watch goals, go and watch the top 100 goals or netbusters, whatever it is. These are the programmes that we have plenty of them at Sky, don't we? Where we show goals left, right and centre. Match of the Day, I think, is a fantastic highlight show that captures every single game, gets all the goals in. Monday Night Football is completely different. It's completely different. It's about detail, it's about analysis. And I think when I um, started, I took the view that I wasn't going to dumb down that analysis. Mm. So I, I think people at home watching are intelligent, they, are, they do want to be informed. They're not just there to sort of see things that they've already seen at the weekend on another programme. They want something different. They want a more analytical view. And if they don't, then go and watch a different programme. Mm. I don't apologise for the fact that we might spend five minutes on a corner or a series of set pieces or just one pattern of play or one individual. I don't apologise for it. We're going to spend tonight, we're doing, I'm talking to you now, as we're going to do the Manchester derby, the 4-2 Manchester United versus City. And we're going to spend 20 minutes talking about that game. Just that game. Not showing highlights, just showing three aspects of that game. And I will not apologise for it. And I think people will find it either interesting or they'll think it's too much. And it's too much for some people. Mm. Some people sometimes, you know, I'll get on social media, get told everything. But the odd person will say, look, it's, you're overanalyzing things here. And sometimes you think, well, are we overanalyzing things? And other people say that detail's fantastic. So one man's overanalyzing is another man's, if you like, fantastic detail. But we don't apologise for what it is. And I, I would never change. I could not... Punditry either has to... One thing that the Sky producer told me that does a show is you have to have a hook. So there has to be a hook. There has to be something that the public remember in the show. In each show, think mm-hmm. of one thing. One thing. Whether one statement, one word, one phrase, uh, one piece of analysis. Because after for an hour of analysis, they're only going to remember one thing. Two things. And so we really work hard to try and get the best piece that we possibly can. Um, and it's a different type of show. I think the more detailed, it should be more coaching-led, it should be more analytical, it should be more for football fans who've got a real serious interest in when they go and watch the game next. Um, I c- they might pick that up. They might look at that and think, ah, yeah, so I can see that now. I couldn't see it before last week. And I hope that's happening. I haven't asked either of them about it, but honestly, I think there's a big similarity between Gary Neville and Gordon Strachan. Born with different levels of skills, 
although they both played for Manchester United, they played in eras so vastly different that it looks like a completely different club. United of Ron Atkinson, somebody for whom I've got less than zero time and respect, and the era of Sir Alex Ferguson, when Gary Neville admitted that because of attention to detail, because of reading the game, he was part of a side whose intensity was matched by its brilliance. The similarity I see that stands out most and what led us into Gordon Strachan sitting on a beautiful London day in an old converted warehouse just on the banks of the Thames was that it was nice to see him. We've always had a decent relationship when he's been a coach and I've been a journalist. He's been complimentary about my work, which you enjoy, but that isn't the be all and end all because it doesn't give you any depth. And the passionate reason for sitting down with Gordon Strachan on that day was to try to understand his views about football and why players like him no longer emerge from Scotland. What's gone wrong that the type of footballer who was confident on the ball, happy to receive it all the time, and then could do something exciting, exhilarating with it to better the team's chances of winning. Why so few of that type now emerge from Scotland? Drawing a parallel between Gary and Gordon, because in travelling across London in a taxi, we had a good old chat. It was interesting. But there was a hint of reserve. When we sat down and we dealt with a chocolate biscuit each and a cup of tea, Gordon came alive when we began to talk about how to improve football, what's wrong with football. And he gave a lovely anecdote about using his garage to play Wally, what we used to call Wally when we were young, where you booted the ball back and forward off the wall, keeping control as much as you can. But Gordon's practice was for a particular reason, which he describes here. Now, when the podcast was finished, the big interview had been put out there to you, the audience. I was knocked out by, one, I never knew he was called WGS, We Gordon Strachan. And two, you kept saying, I could listen to that man for hours. The only problem with it was it was too short. When we began this project, we thought, well, maybe people have a limited amount of time that they want to listen to this. But over and over again, you've said, give us more, give us more, give us more. And maybe in this clip, the passion that Gordon shows for deconstructing the wave, the tidal wave of idiocy, which is helping ruin the development of talent in Scotland, and an equal intensity of passion for how to change things. I do believe it's all to do with the ball and the number of touches. There's something fundamentally wrong that a kid can go from Aberdeen to Kilmarnock and play a game of football, get 10 minutes of football, get back on the bus or car my mum and dad go back up the road and spend nine hours to get eight touches of ball. That is all wrong. The game is not about where you run, what you run. That comes after you've mastered the ball. I think I gave you an example of I watch it at the academy players every Sunday. The better players get 120 touches. That's after travelling the distances of travel, which is a waste of time as well. That can be used to play with the ball. And then I asked my wife to count number. Of, well, tell me when in half an hour was up when I was in the garage and I kick a ball off a wall and could control it with my left foot, kick it with my right foot, come back off one wall, kick it, my, stop it with my right, kick my left. I can do it with various outside, inside, and I got a thousand touches in half an hour. That's equivalent to eight games of academy football I've got in half an hour. Until you master that ball, then all the rest of it's a waste of time. Because we want to make runs, as Iniesta does off the ball and all these guys, but if the ball's not to come there, then you've got a problem. So uh, I think it's a lot simpler than what people think it is.
On the morning of the 2015 Champions League final, I was in Berlin um, doing a show for UEFA on Facebook right underneath the Brandenburg gates. When I finished, very enjoyable to be involved at that level on one of the great fiesta days of football in any given calendar year. I looked at my email and found that Jamie Carragher had sent me something saying, look, I've written my column on this day about Xavi. I've talked about why I think he's the greatest midfielder of all time and I've broken down why I admire him so much. Could you please make sure that he sees this somehow? Not pre-match, I must admit, even Cara wasn't asking that. I was happy to comply. It was something that underlined to me how my appreciation of Jamie Carragher has changed over the years. It was easy to see why if Liverpool was your club, you would admire him because of his, not only his absolute dedication to the cause, but his ability I suppose a little bit similarly to how Gary Neville describes himself in the big interview, his ability to add things to his game that maybe were lacking if you think about pace, for example. I think that Carroll was always misunderstood as a player whose passing ability was actually very good. He began as a central midfielder as who could distribute the ball. So there's no question that this was a good footballer, but maybe there have been quicker footballers. And yet what Jamie was able to do was read, understand, anticipate in a way that made him excellent. I wanted to capture some of that in the big interview, but what I also wanted to capture was the fact that this is a man who had almost as high a passion for and regard for the great technical footballers of the Spanish era, the recent Spanish era, as I did. He's absolutely passionate about football played beautifully, uh, football played intelligently, and he wants to understand the characteristics which have elevated Spanish football, not just above English football, but above the rest of the world over the last, let's call it 10 years at this stage. So a fascinating man, we happened to be able to record the interview on the anniversary of that extraordinary win over AC Milan, 3-0 down, 3-3, one on penalties. And he brought us into that atmosphere. But what we're talking about now, this clip, is about what footballers, particularly footballers who are passionately devoted to the club that they served, how they look at incoming players, how it might sometimes be useful to involve footballers' opinions more often during the signing process when a guy who looks very good, who has shown in the statistical analysis that the scouts get supported with. But sometimes footballers have a horse sense. They look at another player and they say, I'm not sure that's the guy we need. And it may be a view that's running in contrary to the director of football or to the manager, to the scouts. And it shouldn't be the dominant view. But when you listen to how um, players talk about new guys coming in and how much they'd anticipated correctly that a player might or might not add with attitude, with character, then you understand that there's possibly a wasted resource um, on the training pitch when clubs go to sign new footballers. Anyway, here's Cara. He was good fun. Last little section, I want to question you again about something that has been a bugbear of mine and of yours at Liverpool, which is the whole idea of recruitment, how you recruit players. And there's a couple of anecdotes in your book about Stan Collymore and they haven't researched where he wants to live mm. and so on. And then there's all the way through players who weren't good enough to play for Liverpool who were signed up to today with Balotelli who hasn't worked. Mm. And then you get your club selling Luis Suarez who's had one of the most controversial times in Britain come to the city where I work and he's about to win the treble 
But if you took a look at recruiting that player based on his actions at Ajax, you, you probably shouldn't. Mm -hmm. What is recruitment of players like from the inside in your experience? Well, in terms of a manager speaking to you about players, it's normally on international duty. Because a lot of fans, I'm sure the, the club's going into a lot more detail, but you'll see someone on match of the day or a goal, so you think, oh, you do, you do for us. It's not until you've got that place and we do every single day travelling, what's he like as, as a, a team member, a squad member, what's he like around the place. It's not just the ability on the pitch. Craig Bellamy's a good one, similar to Suarez, where you'll hear reports of people saying, bad apple, don't go near him. But I always look at it at training and playing. Off the pitch, if someone is a bad ego, gets into trouble now again, you've got to balance out what they're giving you on the pitch. Mm -hmm. I call someone a bad egg when he doesn't train properly. He doesn't try in a game. Bellamy's a warrior every day in training. Mm. Trains, goes in the gym an hour before. Yeah, he's got a mouth on him and he'll question a manager. And he'll have an outburst now and again. But if I was a coach or a manager, the thought of trying to get someone to train every day or give 100%, whereas Bellamy's interested in football. Suarez wants to train every single day as an animal. Wants to play like his life depends on it. They're the people you want in your squad. You'd want them without the things they bring with it, of course. But I'd much rather have someone like that than someone, as you mentioned before, like Balotelli, who you're struggling to get on the pitch. You know, that's, that, that's why I want you know, warriors in your team. Now, it's easy for me to say I've never bought a player as a manager, and every manager makes mistakes in the market. I think it's probably the most difficult thing as a manager to get people in, get the right characters in. People always say, oh, we'll scout them properly, we'll, we'll speak to the manager who's had them before. This mm. Everyone sees things indifferently. Yeah. You know, everyone... I might have just said that about Craig Bellamy, but you might ask Graeme Souness, who's managed, and might go, oh no, not a chance. It, yeah. There's no. That's why I sometimes think in recruitment, there's that many people involved in it now. It's like, I always think if it, you know, you'd have a scout, he goes and watches a play, and he said he did this well, he did that well. But I might be a different. I might even think he did that well, I might think mm. that was wrong. Do you know what I mean? It's I do know. You've, you've, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and what are you originally looking for? I'd honestly like to say that only one person arriving in Barcelona has had as much impact on me as Henrik Larsson, and that that person was Kevin Bridges. In fact, maybe I can say it, maybe it would be true. Kevin and I first met in Barcelona in the bar next door to the comedy club that he was about to play, the Giggling Giri. Because I'd been in Spain so long, I hadn't heard about the emergence of this Johnny Cash-suited young talented, quick-witted Scott who was taking Britain by storm. And we were making a bit of a noise before the gig and there was this guy pacing up and down in the corner, just quietly muttering away to himself now being a Scott. You see that all the time. It was Kevin. He turned around, heard the noise, looked at me and went, ah, oh, you're the guy off Revista de la Liga, which, albeit that I'm neither Scott nor game, was, I suppose, true. Kevin said at that stage that it was making him even more nervous about the gig he was about to do, but he needn't have worried because it brought the house down. It was a little bunker of a place, jam-packed full of people, and the explosive noise of the laughter I've not forgotten to this day. When Larson came over from Celtic, I knew we were getting a player of, of stature, a player of intelligence, a player who'd proved himself in the European scene, being the leading force, I reckon, in taking Celtic all the way to the AFA Cup final against Jose Mourinho's Porto, but also internationally too. It was evident that this guy who 
had been part of a Sweden side that finished third in the world, the USA 94, had been beyond exceptional in Scotland. But could he fit at FC Barcelona? That was the interesting question. By the time he left, I was happy to say in print and on radio and television that no player, including Ronaldinho, had brought more of a roar of appreciation from the camp now when he came onto the pitch. Two short years, an incredible impact, but a footballer who showed that he could learn and adapt and upgrade his game to suit the style of football club Barcelona, which was completely different from the winning style of Martin O'Neill at Celtic. So when Kevin chose to use this particular anecdote, linking him and the man known as the King of Kings, I wasn't unhappy, as you could probably hear from... It's not just me snorting with laughter. That's Backpage in the side of the room, having pressed the buttons and stepped away from the tape recorder. That's them snorting with laughter too. It amused all of you as well. Larson was never a selfish player, as he was always... But what am I? I wasn't the best option that. was. But that's right, because he was team leader. His decision-making, for example. So... If you're that good and you win trophies and you win matches based on your decision-making and the, the team is subservient to you for the right reasons because you do the right things, you, you resolve problems, and then you go to Barcelona and the system says, the system that you've seen and you understand now, no, you get the ball when we've moved the other team around enough or when Xavi dictates. Because when he came, I'm, I'm not bright enough to know that it was automatic giving me a success, but he didn't understand the system. He went, hold on, I'm in at last and I've just made a brilliant run. It was the right ball to give it to me in Xavi or Iniesta. Or maybe it was Ed Milson then was, no, that's not how it works. And Eto also, it was an irascible character, wouldn't give the ball to him. What I learned, what he taught me, Larson, was that he just, when he broke his leg in the, in the classical November, he went away and just relearned. At what, what age? I don't know what age it was, 32 or 31. I still or, have that sense of humility on, to go back. And, and the capability to go, I'll just reboot. Yep. So I guess it doesn't surprise you, but you know what? You've seen the Barcelona system. It's quite a system. unique career model when you look at even going back to Firenid, having the fall out there, moving to Scotland. Midfielder at Firenid. There's that kind of 600,000, and then suddenly this team in Scotland, as I'm sure that's Celtic were seen as in his circles, whatever, just like moving to the Scottish League as a backward step to then go on to, be, to get to that level, mm -hmm. that you leave and go to Barcelona and then win the Champions League, and then obviously Man United as well. Seville was his biggest disappointment, but... I'm asking you a little bit about that I've experience. Also, just to go back to Henrik Larsson, I'm probably the only guy that's got his autograph on a first bus all day ticket. There we go. Queuing up the car park. We're up to collect tickets. One day, me and my mate Tony, what dogged the last two periods of school on a Friday, went up and the team were just leaving. Like they'd trained at Celtic Park that day. So we're sort of hanging about and we seen a bit of commotion. It was Larsson, so the two sprinted right up. But we never had pens or you never had smartphones at the time. All I had was my first bus all day ticket, Clyde Bank to Parkhead. So I was going, you know the way they just grab one pen and just sign everybody's autograph with the same pen? I'd handed it the all day ticket and he sort of looked at me because he had a marker <laughs> pen. And a first bus all day ticket's pretty narrow, so he's, he had to lean on his jeans, but he, they were light blue jeans and a tiny bit of the ink went off the all day ticket and onto his blue jeans. I remember I was stomach churning. I was like, Henrik, I'm so sorry. As if like, I've read the offer, like, I'll go to D2 and I'll buy you a new pair of jeans. Can you afford a new pair? Because I'll find the money somehow. He, just, he looked that. at me and I, he was more, this wee guy took this pretty bad because I was quite a nervous wee guy. And he's going, he's, he goes like, it's okay, it's okay. And then he gave me all day tickets. So we're trying to get back on the bus. But Larson had obscured the date. So the driver's not letting us on. 
in my free pals, uh, Tony and the other two, they're going, it's Henry Larson's autograph, mate, as if like, you need to let him on. And the driver's going, Larson, he's, he's shite, I'm a Rangers man. So we're going, we're going, oh, mate, come on, he was only obviously having a joke and he waved his on. But only in Glasgow. It was the way my pals rounded round me, as if it should have been... Are you serious? Come on! As if that's valid for a talking week. About, we should be able to drive it home. <laughs> Let Kevin in the driver's seat, man. It's, it's They're joking. Pass, man. So I've, I've still got it somewhere. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code SUMMER. <laughs> it's an anecdote I tell in the big interview that when Ander Herrera was mooted as a possible transfer target for Manchester United as the summer transfer window came to an end a couple of months after David Moyes had been appointed at Old Trafford his agent got in touch with me and said look will you please make clear to David Moyes that Ander is a loyal athletic Bilbao player but would obviously be tempted if Manchester United want him it's a gigantic club it would be a move that would give him more experience he doesn't want to tout for a move but there's very little time left in the window and all the speculation about whether this is or isn't going to happen is distracting him. And if it's not going to happen, he wants to get his head down and concentrate without any distractions on athletic. Can you help in clearing up the situation? So I said, okay, I phoned David Moyes, we had a quick chat and David said very clearly, this is a guy I like. About 18 months ago, I knew a lot more about him when I was at Everton and I was watching him closely myself and I could go to games myself, low profile. And he used the word, the expression, eyes on. David likes to have his own eyes on players that he's going to spend money on to back up the impression that the scouts have given him and the tapes and the statistical analysis, so on and so forth. He said to me, tell Ander that I'm interested and that I'm going to follow him, but I'm going to follow him for a season. And then at the end of my first season at United, we'll have a think and I'll know more and I'll be sure. And at that stage, who knows, maybe a move can take place. A couple of days later, an executive at United decided to go all in. And there was this half-assed move to bring Ander Herrera at the very last instant to Old Trafford and it failed. It didn't take a year, it didn't take the end of the season for David Moyes no longer to be at United. And it was... Uh, to me, another stark reminder of the way in which 
pressures, be they understandable or risible, can take a man of ability, a man who needs time to build, and toss him aside. I think that United fans, listening to the big interview where David Moy spoke, found a different appreciation of the guy that was at their club, um, found more about his character, about his humour, about his love for football. And I think that, retrospectively, it might have been inevitable that United said, we have no more time, we can't wait for you, David. But I do think that on hearing him speak, on listening to what happened to him, there might be some who think, um, we lost a decent guy, we lost a guy of ability, we lost a guy who has a character quite different from the very drawn, uh, pale, under-stress guy who finished his very short time at United. Life in Spain has been good to him. Real Sociedad aren't going all guns at the moment, and who knows where he'll end up when this season finishes. For the moment, it was good to see him in Spain. It's good to see talented Brits here in La Liga. It was a fabulous chat, and um, it ended up with us listening to Earth, Wind and Fire in concert on the beach at San Sebastian in the, admittedly, drizzle and rain. Quite a day we spent with David Moyes. Here's one of the things he told us. I'm certain you wouldn't regret taking the phone call from Alec and accepting the job, but maybe you'd look at the club and the the aftermath of a, of a behemoth like Alex Ferguson leaving, the timing of some of the players' states of mind, the, the movement of David Gill. You went into a club in an enormous state of flux. You weren't given the time that you merited, given what we've talked about Everton and building a club and building an ethos. Have I got it right that... It, you know, you were the right man at the wrong moment in that club's history. Well, it was a, it's a great, great job, Manchester United. Whoever gets the opportunity to manage it should take it because of what the club is and what it stands for. It is a fantastic football club. But it was also a football club which uh, you would have looked at and thought, in, in history gone by, tended to choose a British manager. Maybe not always take someone who was you know, the, the one at the top. They looked around for, mm-hmm. for what they thought was right for their club. Mm-hmm. I thought when I went to the job, I do. I, I believed at the time I was, I was the right person for the job. It was great that you know, Sir Alex had thought that I was the right credentials and the right person to go there. Ultimately, you go into the job and you, know, you have to win games if you're a football manager. That's the first thing I'd say. And, and there's mitigating circumstances, but you have to win enough games. You, you can't know, win them on your own. No, you can't win them on their own, and it takes time. And, and we discussed a bit earlier about how people, you know, can give you that opportunity to get it correct. And to, let's be fair, Manchester United had given Sir Alex a good yeah. period to correct it. So, you know, speaking of in the history, you, you you looked at Manchester United as a club who would have given their managers opportunities to build a, a team. But as I said, I didn't win enough games in the first year, and because of that, whether I was manager of Preston, Everton, Manchester United. You still need to win the games. It's a running theme when Backpage and I start to talk about which kind of footballer, which kind of guy, which era we should represent in planned interviews. One thing we all agree on is that there's a tendency now for people who played football to a high level and go on television to make their living post the game to be regarded as pretty much no more than the guy you see on screen, which is patently false. I suppose what media like The Big Interview help to do is to give people a voice without showing clips of 
what made them great as managers or as footballers. Therefore, picking on Charlie Nicholas was something that I was determined to do because I know he's a guy of fun, of substance, a guy who breaks the mold, breaks the stereotype of this thing that has lasted, if you think about it, since the early 80s, this champagne Charlie stuff, which doesn't in any way get to the meat and bones of the, the guy I know, the guy I've talked to, and the guy who off-screen from his brilliant programme that he shares with uh, Jeff Stelling, Phil Thompson, Matt Letizia and the inimitable Paul Merson, Soccer Saturday. Charlie's a, a man of depth and an interesting guy, but in his time, I thought he was a fabulous footballer. And jumping around a little bit in the narrative, what you fed back to me on Twitter once you'd listened to this interview was that many of you said Charlie was the reason to keep believing in Arsenal in the arid days of the early 80s. When things um, weren't as good, when they had fantastic players, but they were not the winning machine that they became under George Graham and then under Arsene Wenger in the early part of his life at the Gunners. Charlie spoke well, and Charlie also spoke about the fact that that joy he gave some young Arsenal fans in the 80s, irrespective of the fact that he could have become a far more dominant, far more high-achieving footballer. None of that would have happened if he'd listened to the entreaties of Manchester United and Liverpool that that was the right place for them. Now, he discarded Manchester United for one reason and Liverpool for quite another one. But he had choices. Inter Milan, too, were in there. And this is how Charlie, retrospectively, described what happened. I love Arsenal. I'm more passionate about Arsenal than any other club because they treated me well. They were great people. It was the wrong choice at the wrong time. Liverpool, Spurs, Man United, Inter Milan were all there for me. I spoke to Liverpool a few occasions. Kenny and Sunis were kept and you have to come, you're perfect for us. Yeah. Kenny says you'll take over my position. Uh, and I said, no, I won't, because you'll play another four or five seasons. That's an incredible statement. Mm -hmm. It was, and it was mind-blowing to hear the King of Kings saying, saying that to me. But uh, I got very close to him and Sunis, and they kept saying to me, no, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, you'll fit in. You mm. won't be sitting on the bench like a lot of Liverpool signers do. But I, I couldn't trust that. I could trust my ability, but I couldn't trust the prospect that I might have to sit on the bench when at 21 I'm, I just want out just, I just want to play where can I play I didn't want to go to Milan because I think that the, the game would have been too defensive and too structured for me at 21 no doubt also the lifestyle thing would have been quite a turnaround for me because I'm, you know, I'm a Glasgow social boy and at 21 then I still wanted to have a bit of a life it's a very brutal league still you know, a really brutal league it, it was and there were so many talented Technical players had gone there and struggled. Yeah. And I thought, no, if, if it does happen, maybe four or five years down the line, fair yeah. enough, yeah. when you're big enough and to take it. But So for me, it was always going to be England. I met Man United, too. I did think at first I probably would be drawn to. My dad was in the newspaper industry, worked at Express most of his life, and then he got paid off. And he was in between jobs, and they were offered a role in Manchester. And my dad said, maybe there's something significant. Yeah. That you, would, you will eventually move to Manchester. But I didn't particularly like Ron Atkinson. Without going over the score, I'm applauding deliberately because all uh, flashing of substance, a man I don't have a lot of admiration for and you wouldn't have enjoyed playing for. Well, no, I, 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 I doubt it. I mean, it wasn't a particularly good conversationist because it was very much about him. <laughs> but we were sitting with Martin Edwards over a steak dinner and we were an international team and Jockstein had let me go for dinner with him. It was steak and chips. The three steak and chips came. Ron went into his shirt and messed about with something and then brought this kind of medallion out. I thought, what's he got, a knife and fork in there or something? I mean, what? 
what it was, he'd finished his dinner and he had a little, it was a little cross thing, but he had a button at the top of it and this toothpick came out. And he started scraping his teeth, and I thought, oh my God, am I seriously? I could not play for a man like you. No. That's absolutely ridiculous. And I could not wait to get out of the restaurant to get away. But Martin Edwards had to take me back. So it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen in my life. Usually the emotion that these big interview experiences generate is intoxication. I will freely admit that when I'm sitting across from somebody of high achievement in football, comedy, and in the future, I would very much hope cinema music too. I find it irresistible to keep asking them questions, to, to get more out of them, particularly if you get the feeling that they're enjoying the process. But there's also sometimes surprise. Now, I knew that Chris Waddle was a footballer that I'd considered, as I say in the podcast, England's equivalent of Zidane, a mixture between Zidane and Loudrop, Michael, that is. And I'd loved watching him as a footballer. He was one of the guys who most made me fall in love with the concept of European football when he went to Marseille in the 80s. Therefore, I wanted to hear from him. I wanted him to describe his art. But where the surprise came in was that Chris was as good at describing the anecdotes of his life, at describing the process of his trade, that ability of being a winger who'll take people on time and again as he was at playing. Now, that's a compliment which sounds easy to give because there's a bit of resonance about why well, he talks as well as he plays. But in Chris's instance, it was absolutely true. And I can tell you that Neil and Martin and I sat there spellbound for a couple of hours in a sunny Yorkshire day up in Chris Wardle's den in his lovely house where he transfixed us and you would really only need to give Chris a prompt and off he would go into one more anecdote of colour, of fun, of wit, of intelligence. But when you then hear him talking about the relationship between him and the paying public, I think that one of the themes that has most come out in the big interview so far is not a maudlin idea that the game used to be better. Because if you look at the clubs that I live nearest to, Rimmerdid and Barcelona, I believe that we've seen football of all time five-star greatness during my life in Spain. So everything wasn't better in the past. What was clearly better, however, was Britain's ability to produce players of technique, of flair, of intelligence, of creativity, and that magical element that for all the analysis you do, for all the athletic training that you give, for all that you get the diet right and the recuperation right and the travel plans better, a footballer has to be able to beat a man. A footballer has to be comfortable enough on the ball and to know that A, breaking a line of pressure changes the structure of a game tactically and B, it's what the fans pay for. How the hell Britain has lost so many coaches and kids who believe in that central plank of football's greatness that one man with a ball at his feet, one woman at the, with a ball at her feet in the women's game can go past an opponent. How we've lost that I can't begin to understand. Now, Chris Waddle was almost the perfect epitome of how to do that. And what's more, he could explain how to do it and what it felt like when people stood up to watch him at his absolute genius best. 
No, I, I think football for me was an entertainment business. I think you pay money to be entertained. Listen, if you go to a stadium and there's 36,000 there, there's 56,000 there, there's 80,000 there. Listen, if you're a, a, an artist, a singer in a, a group, you must think this is, what, this is what you play for. You know, when they go on that stage and the, the stadium's full and they start belting their songs out and the crowd's going mad, they must think this is as good as it gets. So to me, I was always brought up that it's, a, it's an entertainment business, you know, and people want to be... I used to love it when, even with Hillsborough when I was at Wednesday, and I would be standing on the right south stand where the tunnel is, and the boys get transferred across to John Sharon, pings one across to us. Our new round is, as the ball's coming, I used to think, well, he's not going to full back on, get there, he's too far away. I would bring the ball down, bring it down, and then I'm going to think, right, this is it, I'm coming for you. As soon as the ball came to my chest, I turned out the corner of my eye, I could see everybody in the stand go, and you could hear the seats go, flap, flap, flap. <laughs> and I used to think, that's what I come for. I used to think, that's what I come for. Now I'd run at the full back, listen, I may cock it up, I might have fell off the ball, I might have run it out of play, he may, he may take it off us. But I just thought, you know, I'll go past him, you know, and he could hear a, you know, when is it Marseille? You know, the velodrome, fantastic, the old stadium, you know, the old bicycle track. Atmosphere was fantastic. It was, it was all round the ground at Marseille. It's not just about an end where British grounds always had a cockpit. Yeah. And the rest of it was all people sat like that way. The club and whatever. In Marseille, it was just the whole ground was fanatical. Yankees and the thingies and the ultras. And it was just non-stop. So when you obviously got people on toast and you were doing things to people and, you know, it, it, and literally, it's, yeah, it, you can understand why people wanted to kick it, isn't it? Because... I did embarrass a lot of people, and when I look back, I used to say them after, I'm not embarrassing you, I've got nothing, I don't even know you. Mm. I'm doing my job. At the end of the day, I wasn't going up there and being a Holland Globetrotter and just doing it because it was a testimonial games or benefiting it. There was points at stake, there was money at stake, there was everything at stake. So the team would say, they didn't ever see anything, but I just looked at them and they used to thought, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball. But they used to thought, because there's something at the end of it, there's a cross, a shot, something's going to happen, or I'll roll somebody in. That's why they gave the ball. And yes, in the, in the mean state of before you did that, you might have went past two people or embarrassed the one guy to, you're saying you nutmegged them or you did something to them where the crowd all went. Well, so you just think, well, you're getting the whole package here. So for those of you old enough, that's your stars on 45. One disc. Lots of songs, all packed together, linked in between. The reason we've done it, just to state again, is that the three big podcast interviews, the three big interviews that we've got coming up for you from October 19th, are only kicking off on that date because that's when we are reaching out and saying that without your support, we can't continue financially. We're out of pocket, we've loved it. But the idea is that we can generate enough financial support to continue for at least another year. We're going to announce to you very clearly, go and join the mailing list at grahamhunter.tv, please. We'll tell you what our objectives are. We'll tell you who the big interviews are going to be. And let me tell you, these next three are as rich, as deep, as interesting, as funny, as captivating as anything we've done so far. I genuinely believe that you'll love them. The reason for this was to bridge the gap, just to remind you about some of the things that have been said and done um, in the big interview so far. It was partly because I was missing you. Yes, I was. And you were saying, where is the big interview? So this is our best of cuts clip. Hope you've enjoyed it. 
from the middle of October. We're going to need your support if you want this to continue. We'll explain it more in detail for the moment. It's been nice being back with you. Let's keep this thing going, right? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.